Welcome to Bookish at Bethel. My name is Anne-Marie Koistra. I teach in the history department. I'm joined by Carrie Peffley, and I teach in the philosophy department. Today, we have the distinct pleasure of talking with Dan Ritchie, who is in the English department, but actually has written a number of things about Edmund Burke. So he is going to talk about Edmund Burke. He will try a little bit to talk about Thomas Paine. And uh, thanks for joining us. Well, Dan, thanks for joining us this morning. It's my pleasure. Uh, Carrie has a whole list of questions <laughs> that she wants to ask you about. Mm-hmm. So I might let Carrie go first this morning. Okay. Well, so last week we had Logan on and Logan described Burke and kind of a synopsis of what the students would be reading. But I thought we might discuss, um, have you start by discussing the pain Burke debate um, and and what they're what they're arguing over to get us started this morning. Yeah, um, they're arguing about the French Revolution ostensibly, but it's actually an argument about freedom and how you fashion a free people more generally. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Burke uh, Burke's arguments very much have to do with England. They they have. Some to do with France, but but not that much. Um, so here here's the chronology. The French Revolution starts in July of 1789 uh, with the storming of the Bastille, and for a while, uh, people in England really don't know what to make of it. I mean, France is a historic enemy of England at this time, and so a lot of people are are happy that change is happening. But Burke is really the first public figure to strongly break with uh, with any consensus about the French Revolution and to come out against mm-hmm. it. And the Reflections on the Revolution are published in November of 1790. That inaugurates a huge pamphlet war. You can think of it as the first viral media campaign. Uh-huh. And uh, among the people who respond to Burke are Mary Wollstonecraft, mm-hmm. a very interesting response to Burke's. But Paine's is by far the most famous response. Mm-hmm. So Burke and Paine uh, rapidly become the two most noted media antagonists. And um, then Burke's party, he was a member of the Whig party. Uh, the Whig party itself becomes divided over the French Revolution and formally splits in 1794. But you asked what they were arguing about. And to me, the the cleanest way of saying it is they're arguing over how you fashion a free people. And Paine exhibits the revolutionary sensibility, which Logan discussed last week, mm-hmm. that that we need essentially to wipe away the past, mm-hmm. that the past is a repository of prejudices and errors. Um, the educational system needs to be overturned. The religious system uh, needs to be either abolished or made a tool of the state as it was in France. Mm-hmm. Um, mores and manners need to be tar- entirely changed. Even language needs to be changed. That's the revolutionary sensibility. Uh, Burke's sensibility, I like to call historic constitutionalism. Mm-hmm. Um, it locates rights in uh, a natural law tradition, so it embraces duties as well as rights. And it sees the limitations to reason. 
And so it looks back to history and tradition as modes of knowing, right? not just modes of authority. Mm-hmm. So I'd say that the big argument is between the revolutionary sensibility and the historic constitutional sensibility. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. That's very helpful. It is, yes, because yesterday I was telling the students that what we're talking about is not just the French Revolution. It's much, much bigger than that in terms of where does knowledge come from? Where do we get our authority? Where, what does a good society look like? The, the title of Burke's book is Reflections on the Revolution in France. But that title suggests that the revolution is much broader than France. And indeed, as the decade goes on, there, the revolution mm-hmm. spreads throughout all of Europe and uh, nearly to Britain, the Citizen Genet Affair in America is the attempt to export it to America. Mm. So Burke is writing about the revolution, and he talks about it as a revolution in sentiments, a revolution right. in manners. The most astonishing thing yet seen in the history mm-hmm. of the world is his phrase. Mm-hmm. So again, yesterday, no, the day before, at lunch, Four out of the five of us humanities professors were at lunch together and debating this Burke Payne discussion quite strongly. Strong words were used. Um, And one of the questions that we had for you, since we knew you were going to be on our podcast this morning, was did either of them write a follow-up after things started going south in France? Oh, yes. And what did they say? Well, Payne never changed his mind. Okay. Uh, there's a part two. I think it's in the Cambridge mm-hmm. version of the Rights of Man. And then the uh, the writings on religion also show that he didn't change his mm-hmm. mind. Paine actually became a member of the National Assembly, mm-hmm. even though he didn't know French, which is... Uh, that seems very t- very Paineian. It, it is. You don't, you don't actually need to know anything <laughs> about the country. You just need to know the abstract principles of justice, and then you can legislate for them. But he was thrown in prison. He, he was very critical of, of America, very critical of Washington and, uh, and so on. So he's thrown in prison. And, <laughs> and then at that point, he reaches out to Washington, mm-hmm. uh, George Washington, I mean. <laughs> but it's kind of typical when, when we get in trouble abroad, we reach out to Washington. And James Monroe <laughs> rescues him. Mm. But he comes back and dies a, a poor man. But he never mm-hmm. changed. It was more important to him that he stay true to his principles Mm -hmm. than that he allow events to change his mind. Mm -hmm. So he represents a a particular kind, I would say the first global citizen in Mm -hmm. a way, because he never had a a country, and the first uh, global revolutionary. Mm -hmm. Burke wrote many follow-up pieces to the French Revolution, uh, on the French Revolution. Um, As I said, his party began to split. And so he called himself an old Whig. Okay. And the new Whigs, uh, people like Charles James Fro- uh, Fox and then uh, tr- uh, Lord Grey of the Earl Grey tea fame and the mm. Grey Parliamentary Reform of 1833, those those guys moved farther to the left. And um, uh, they split with Burke. Uh, over the very ideas we're talking about, over human nature, religion, mm-hmm. what it means to be a citizen, uh, and so on. Um, Napoleon then became a unifying force. Um, even 
in the midst. There was a lot of uh, political repression of people we'd call liberals today in the 1790s, which is pretty ugly. Mm -hmm. Priestley's house was burned, for instance. Um, but Napoleon was a unifying force. Everybody knew that Napoleon was a dictator and he would have invaded mm -hmm. Britain if he had had the chance. Right. Interesting. Um, I wonder, I think that you in the past when you've lectured on Burke and Payne have said that Burke was less opposed to the American Revolution compared to the French Revolution. Is that true? He wasn't opposed at all. He thought Britain was on the wrong side. Mm -hmm. He said in the appeal from the new to the old Whigs in 1790, the Americans were standing to George III in 1776 the same way we were standing to James II in 1688. Mm -hmm. oh. That is, as James was acting unconstitutionally in 1688, so we were acting unconstitutionally, it really in 1774 and 75. Mm -hmm. uh, and he, he says the liberty that Americans were seeking was the liberty that they were enjoying as, should have enjoyed as English subjects. Mm -hmm. And we were denying it to them okay. through uh, not allowing them uh, any representation mm -hmm. in parliament, no effective representation. Um, so, yeah. And he was not an opponent of Republican government per se. Mm -hmm. uh, he doesn't say much about it, but he does. And isn't it also, I, I remember reading some of his comments on the success of the American Revolution or, or why it worked so well also has to do with the unique concrete situations of the colonies that Americans were more uniquely devoted to liberty than anyone else in the world. That's right. He said um, they, they, it's the dissidents of dissent, the Protestantism of the Protestant religion. And he says they, they snuff uh, <laughs> uh, they snuff the threat to liberty in every tainted breeze. <laughs> <laughs> There's more copies of Blackstone, the commentator mm -hmm. on the laws in America than anywhere else, he mm -hmm. said. But he, he says abstract liberty is never to be found. It always inheres in in actual institutions. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, actually, Burke is very much like Lincoln. Mm -hmm. uh, Lincoln does have strong principles, as Burke does, but uh, he, he's, a, he's a prudent uh, president. That is, the actual facts on the ground must shape our principles. Right. And if they don't, then we are essentially leaving human society behind and thinking we can do it simply with our brains. Mm -hmm. So in many respects, Burke is also an anti-enlightenment thinker. Right. In the midst of the enlightenment, mm -hmm. he shows he sees the shortcomings of it. Yes. But yeah, America had had the experience of Republican government or Republican-like government for over a century. Right. And it inhered in assemblies and manners and, and local customs that were mm -hmm. respected throughout the colonies, mm -hmm. for better and sometimes for worse. Right. What else do you have on your list there, Carrie? Well, I we're at such an interesting political moment right now um, that I wondered if, as a as a Burkean scholar, whether as you're watching, say, the Democratic primaries and and current American politics, what you think a Burke would have to say, whether you see Burkeans versus whether you see Burke versus Payne 
in what's happening now. Would, would that we did. Uh, <laughs> I, I think Burke, uh, Burke would be weeping. <laughs> <laughs> there is no... Uh, the, 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 the closest thing to a Burkean commentator we have, I think, is somebody like George Will, mm-hmm. uh, who, who uh, loves Burke and quotes him. And then there's a an editor at a magazine called National Affairs called Yuval Levin, and yeah. he, he wrote a book on Burke and Payne just a couple of years ago. And mm-hmm. that's a, a pretty accessible book. So if people are really interested, he he translates uh, Burkean and Paynean ideas more into the 2016 context. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, Yuval, in his recent, uh, more recent book, has talked about the importance to build up institutions mediating institutions that come between the government and the citizen. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I don't see anybody arguing for that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bernie Sanders is talking about universal rights, human rights. um, Virtually everything is now becoming a human right. Mm -hmm. Um, If you follow this this kind of thinking, um, some people think the access to the Internet is a human right Mm -hmm. and a a free university education is a human right. Mm -hmm. And the Babylon Bee said that uh, access to your parents' Netflix is now a human (laughs) right. So (laughs) so this is – in a way, it is is, um, extreme Paynean Mm -hmm. thought. But let me give you another example um, from Bernie. Uh, In the summer of 2017 – the president uh, nominated a guy named Russell Vogt to be an assistant deputy, a minor f- figure in the Office of Management and Budge- Budget. And Sanders opposed him because Vogt is a Christian and he believes that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. Mm-hmm. Now, the U.S. Constitution says there shall be no religious tests mm-hmm. on government officials. So what Sanders was doing is plainly illegal, mm-hmm. plainly unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. But because he believes so strongly in universal equality, that mm-hmm. kind of revolutionary, we're not going to discriminate, that trumps everything, including mm-hmm. the U.S. Constitution. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a problem. And then the, the current president uh, it, it seems to think he can rewrite the Constitution every other week. Right. right. So, uh, yeah, just uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth, I think, is what Burke would be doing. But. <laughs> Uh, to me, to, to, to say one more concrete thing, the, the big missing piece is Congress. Why, why is Congress not asserting its, its rights, uh, its, its responsibilities mm-hmm. to, uh, to make laws, to restrain the president, both this president and Barack Obama, mm-hmm. also many, many executive orders and memoranda that really should have been Right, they've continually increased, right? Yes, over the, past. The, the power mm-hmm. of the presidency continuing in, to increase, and neither candidate wants to hold it back. Mm-hmm. I, I told one class, if if anybody would run for president and say, "I need less power," <laughs> I, I need I need Congress to do its uh-huh. job. I would vote for that yes, person. <laughs> yes, that's a more Burkean approach, uh-huh. but nobody's saying that. Yeah, or like a. a- platonic philosopher king or queen is maybe what we need. Carrie Peffley, I would vote for you in a heartbeat. <laughs> Thank you. I said that also this week. Yep. She's my right in vote, maybe. Um, I would be curious, Dan. Um, I know you're a big Burkean scholar, but is there something that you find appealing in Payne? Uh, Payne was a better publicist. Okay. 
these are the times the try men's souls. I mean, mm-hmm. that's poetry. Yeah. Um, so he, he was, he was not an original thinker. Payne wasn't, but he was a better, more accessible, uh, publicist and, and, um, rhetorician, mm-hmm. uh, than Burke, at least on the popular level. His book was cheaper mm-hmm. than Burke's. Oh. Burke, Burke's was also sold many copies, mm-hmm. but Payne sold far more. And uh, so, yeah, um, he, he is great at ridiculing Burke. He pities the plumage but forgets the dying bird. Uh, great lines like that. Of course, Burke's lines are greater. Uh, mm-hmm. But <laughs> a people who will not look uh, to posterity, uh, oh. a people who don't remember their ancestors will right. not uh, look forward to posterity. Yes, um, and it's praising of I love a manly liberty. I yes. Mean, he's got some great lines. Absolutely. To make us love our country, our country ought to be lovely. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, yeah. I so. like when I ask about pain, Dan immediately still goes to Burke at the end of that, <laughs> which is fine. That's okay. The, the two are, are really locked uh, forever. Uh, Hazlitt, the romantic uh, critic, argued that it would be good to bind the two works together mm-hmm. in one uh, in one and there actually is a, a version of that where you have Burke and Payne together oh. yeah yeah interesting mm-hmm. that is interesting doesn't have good introductions and footnotes don't buy it okay oh that's good to know I was thinking about bringing that up later on should we buy a new text <laughs> what else do you have on your list um, so just then so you have a lot of um materials out on the table in front of us. Including, if you had, we should mention, including, Dan, you want to explain, um, they can't see this, but what, what are you holding in your hand right now? I did my dissertation on, on Burke in the 80s, and there was no standard edition of Burke at that time. Oxford has just finished it mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. So uh, one of the best editions was by uh, Bonn in the 1850s. And uh, so when my brother was in Edinburgh in 1981, I told him to buy me a complete Burke. <laughs> and so he looked around the bookstores in, at the University of Edinburgh and found uh, an 1854 Bone version. But in the flyleaf, in the inscription, this particular set of about nine volumes was given to a New Zealand immigrant as he was getting ready to leave Auckland to travel to Europe. So that means... These nine volumes were published in London, they were shipped across to New Zealand, and then they were carried back by Archibald Clark. That's fantastic. (laughs) To to Europe, Uh and ultimately ended up in Edinburgh, and then in New Jersey, where we were living Mm -hmm. at the time. And now in Minnesota. And now in Minnesota. They're well-traveled books. They are. Anyway, I interrupted, but I, I had to oh. mention the, the artifact here in front of us. Yeah. So the yeah, so I was just going to ask these artifacts in front of us. What what, what do you is, have here? Dan? Yeah, what you've got? Well, I did. I wrote an article. Um, it was called "Fashioning a Free People." Uh, I spent uh, a research month at the Newberry Library mm-hmm. in Chicago, which has a lot of 18th century French pamphlets. Mm-hmm. So I read a lot of the and and the encyclopedia, the French encyclopedia, Diderot d'Alembert the middle of the the height of the Enlightenment. So I read a lot of articles in that on citizen and nature and religion and so on. Uh, And then a lot of pamphlets, a lot of very vitriolic pamphlets against the church and and novels uh, in an effort to uh, understand what the revolutionaries 
and then what the Americans and what the British mm -hmm. in the 1790s meant by a free people. Mm. What does it mean to be a free people? Because the, the revolutionaries, the French considered themselves a free people in the 1790s, mm -hmm. and so did the British, and so did the Americans. So what did we mean by that? Right. And how do you, how do you make a free people? Mm -hmm. And we've done so much in, in recent decades to destroy various cultures and, mm -hmm. uh, uh, polities, and that's happening all over the world, mm -hmm. not always by the United States. And I was just wondering, well, how do you how do you fashion a free people? Mm -hmm. And what did we think about it in the 1790s, under the first decade of the Constitution with the Alien and Sedition Acts? What did the British think about it? Um, and what did the French? Interesting. And so is is there a soundbite difference that you could give us between what the the Brits, the French, and the Americans were all thinking in that in the late 1700s? Well, I, what I came down to was these two different sensibilities, mm -hmm. a constitutional sensibility, which I think you see in Washington and Hamilton. Okay. Uh, and uh, really, if you listen to the music from Hamilton, you actually get a good deal mm -hmm. of that, his quarrels with Jefferson. And mm -hmm. Jefferson had a more revolutionary right. sensibility, although he didn't govern in that way. Mm -hmm. right. But his, his rhetoric, uh, especially through the 1790s, is that way. Um, the, the, the revolutionary sensibility, as I said, is more, is more universal. Mm -hmm. It trusts more to, to reason. Mm -hmm. um, its supreme virtue is equality above all else. Uh, it looks at the past as uh, a repository of errors, and religion should be universal. It shouldn't be particular. And the constitutional sensibility is what I've been describing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yes, there is a natural law or a moral um, underpinning to the uh, entire world, but it's manif it must be manifested in society. It's mm -hmm. Aristotelian in that mm -hmm. sense. Uh, human beings are born to, to live in political states, and... If you don't, you're either a beast or a god. Mm -hmm. So that's the soundbite. And you can see it in novel after novel, most of which are forgotten and should be forgotten, <laughs> uh, <laughs> in these pamphlets, in the, in the encyclopedia, mm -hmm. and then also in the constitutional documents, Washington's Farewell Address, okay. and in Burke and Payne. Right. Which is why Burke and Payne is so much fun to read, I think. Right. Well, and I will say, too, uh, the latest issue of the Atlantic Monthly has a piece on Abraham Lincoln and the radical Republicans in Congress. And they actually, the kinds of things you were mentioning a few minutes ago with um, Abraham Lincoln being a little bit more in the vein of Burke, um, that was sort of the flavor of the article, mm -hmm. too, that he was, in fact, the more moderate and was doing so for all sorts of good reasons, even though the radical Republicans had these great ideas but weren't may maybe so fantastic. Mm -hmm. So very relevant, I guess, is what I'm saying. And yes. for, your, for your next readings in Humanities as well, going, we haven't mentioned Tocqueville, right. but uh, the importance of uh, associations, uh, mm -hmm. non-governmental associations, um, the tension between liberty uh, and equality, mm -hmm. and that's exactly what mm -hmm. Lincoln is, is going to have to mm -hmm. deal with. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the Burke and Payne kind of set the tone for really the rest of the semester Yeah, in this course, immediately with the feds and anti-feds and then on to Tocqueville. Exactly. Hamilton mm -hmm. is much more in the Burkean line, and Madison, as he progresses through the 1790s, mm -hmm. uh, leans more to his friend Jefferson. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, we have... 
we have should to- probably shift into another thing that Dan Ritchie has helped us out with. He sure uh, did. Mm-hmm. So do you want to explain that, Anne-Marie? I would love to. So my students were feeling a little fatigued with the sorts of writing that I had been assigning as part of their seminar work. And so one of my students, Michael, thank you, Michael, uh, came up with the idea of maybe doing some haiku uh, as we were approaching the study of Candide uh, by Voltaire. So we had students uh, put together some haiku, and then we submitted uh, the best of our various sections to Dan Ritchie. And Dan Ritchie um, judged along with, uh, can I say your wife, Judy? Um, okay, so Judy was part of this. And they did come up with uh, a couple of awards. And I don't know, Dan, do you want to read the best all around? Yeah, let me read the best. And maybe you want to read your comment after you read the best. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is a a poem on Pangloss. I, I gave awards for the best poems on individual characters. And mm-hmm. so this one for Pangloss and for best all around. And this is, is Michaela Schiller. Yes. Um, and here we go. Dead. Alive. Then dead. No, wait. Alive. For the best world that there would be. <laughs> Judy and I both loved this. Mm-hmm. This was this was our our favorite. There are a number of other good ones, and uh, you'll you'll hear about those community students later. But I said this haiku is a switchback journey, both in form and content. Haiku often gives you the experience of meditating in a Zen garden, but this poem gives you the experience of careening down the Matterhorn in a Ferrari. <laughs> And yet that's the life that Pangloss lives and dies and lives again, (laughs) which is why I love this poem. And who could think that this was the best of all possible worlds after all that? Only one person, Pangloss. Yes. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And thank you, Dan, for doing such an excellent job judging and for finding a good Mm -hmm. co-conspirator with regard to the judging. Well, the other question we always ask our guests is, what is on your nightstand as far as fun reading? Ooh, fun reading. Um, hmm. Well, you're, you're going to have to have a broad definition of fun here. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> we can we can work with that, Dan. We can work with that. Uh, <laughs> on Monday, uh, uh, March 9th, uh, Bethel is having a uh, chapel speaker named John Inazu, mm-hmm. and uh, he's written a a book called Confident Pluralism, but I heard about him uh, earlier. He, he wrote a book about uh, the First Amendment freedom of assembly. Oh, okay. And his argument is that we've forgotten the richness of what freedom of assembly means. When the founders made it, John argues, uh, they were specifically looking to make it possible for groups to form, we're leaning toward Tocqueville here, mm-hmm. uh, associations that were out of the mainstream and maybe mm-hmm. even against the mainstream. And in recent years, such groups have lost or been threatened to lose their ability to associate. Mm-hmm. InterVarsity getting kicked off college campuses, mm-hmm. Boy Scouts uh, being sued uh, over gay scoutmasters and so on. And Inazu is saying this is a bad understanding of freedom of assembly. Uh, within certain, all, all rights are limited by each other, but we need to recover uh, the robust version of freedom of assembly because our democratic republic rests on people being able to form associations. Tocqueville calls it Mm -hmm. the mother science of democracy. So uh, I actually did find that fun to read uh, and and very stimulating. Um, 
So apart from uh, humanity's haiku. <laughs> You've been focusing on Inazu. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. Carrie, what's on your nightstand? Well, so I am now back to Margaret Atwood's new yep. book, The Testaments, which is also probably not fun um, either, but is is interesting. And then flipping back between that and also not necessarily fun, but finishing up a, a book that I had set aside a while ago and now I'm coming back to C.S. Lewis's A Grief Observed. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. working with those two right now on my nightstand. Nice. What about you, Anne-Marie? I am still working on Louise Erdrich's book about something in the living God. The future home there of we the go. living God. Thank you. Mm-hmm. The future home of... Did you read it, Dan? I have read it. What did you think? Uh... I thought it was too indebted to Margaret Atwood, to be honest. Oh, oh. okay. Well, I'm now s- I'll have to read that. Yeah, once I finish. I was saying last time that she's one of these authors who I don't necessarily like, and yet I'm very intrigued by her, and mm-hmm. so I actually enjoy reading the book, even though I'm never quite sure how I feel about it while I'm reading it. Mm-hmm. So, well, those are good nighttime reads sometimes too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been fantastic, Dan. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And for all of our listeners, thank you for listening to Bookish at Bethel. Bethel.